Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Bad news about the good news. You know, there was a, a boy that came to my door. He was trying to sell me a subscription to a weekly newspaper. And he was very persuasive. He says it only costs a quarter a week. And the best thing about this newspaper is that it prints only the good news. Well, you know what? In a world filled with trouble, it's becoming more and more difficult to find any, quote, good news. So possibly the newspaper was a bargain after all. To the person who has trusted Christ as Savior, the real good news is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. See 1 Corinthians 15. It is the good news that sinners can be forgiven and that they, they can go to heaven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The good news of salvation through faith in Christ is the most important message in the whole world. This message had changed Paul's life and through him, the lives of others. But now this message was being attacked and Paul was out to defend the truth of the gospel. There were some false teachers that they had invaded the churches of Galatia, churches that Paul had founded, and they were teaching a different message from that which Paul had taught. As you begin to read Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians, you can tell immediately that something is radically wrong because he does not open his letters with, this, with his usual praise to God and prayer for the saints. No, he has no time. Paul is about to engage in a battle for the truth of the gospel and the liberty of the Christian life. False teachers are spreading a false gospel, which is a mixture of law and grace. And Paul is not going to stand by and do nothing about it. So see how Paul approaches this um, in, in the Galatian or with the Galatian Christians in his attempt to teach them the truth about the gospel. So in these opening verses, the Apostle Paul takes three definite steps as he prepares to fight this battle. First, he explains his authority in verse, verses 1 through 5. And then later on in his letter, Paul will deal with the Galatians on the basis of affection. But at the outset, he's careful to let them know the authority he has from the Lord. He has three sources of authority. In verses 1 and 2, quote, Paul, an apostle. So in the early days of the church, God called special men to do special tasks. And among them were the apostles. And I've said this before in, in some of the other books that I've commented on. The word means Quote, one who is sent with a commission. So while he was ministering on, on earth, Jesus had many, many disciples or learners. And from those, he selected 12 apostles. See Mark 3. Later, one of the requirements for an apostle was that he have uh, witnessed the resurrection. See Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 3. And of course, Paul himself was neither a disciple nor an apostle during Christ's earthly ministry. 
but he had seen the risen Lord and he had been commissioned by him and he knew it. Paul's miraculous conversion and call to apostleship did create some problems. From the very beginning, he was, uh, he was apart from the original apostles. His enemies said that he was not a true, true apostle for this reason. So Paul is careful to point out that he had been made an apostle by Jesus Christ just as much as had the original 12 been made apostles by Jesus Christ. His apostleship was not from human selection. It was not from human approval, but by divine appointment. Therefore, he had the, the authority to deal with the problems in Gala the Galatian churches. But in his ministry, Paul uh, did have a second basis of authority. He had founded the churches in Galatia. So he was not writing to them as a stranger, but as one who had brought them the message of life in the very beginning. So this letter reveals Paul's affection for those believers. See Galatians chapter 4. Unfortunately, this affection was not being returned to him. And this matter of the, the founding of the Galatian churches has kept serious Bible students at work for many years. And the problem stems from the meaning of the word Galatia. Several hundred years before the birth of Christ, there were some fierce tribes that migrated from Gaul or modern France into Asia Minor, and they found Galatia, which simply means, quote, the country of the Gauls. And when the Romans recognized the ancient world, they made Galatia a part of a, a larger province that included several other areas. And they called the entire province Galatia. So then back in Paul's day, when a person talked about Galatia, you could not be sure whether he meant the smaller country of Galatia or the larger Roman province. Bible students today are divided over whether Paul wrote to churches in the country of Galatia or in the province of Galatia. The former view is called the, quote, the North Galatian theory, and the latter is called the South Galatian theory. Well, the matter is not finally uh, settled, but the evidence seems to indicate that Paul wrote to churches in the southern part of the province of Galatia. Now, I'm saying that, let me say that again. Don't misquote me because I'm not saying it's a settled matter. But the evidence seems to indicate that Paul wrote two churches in the southern part of the province of Asia. Antioch, Iconium, Lister, Derby, churches he founded on his first missionary uh, journey. See Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul always had a loving concern for his converts and a deep desire to see the churches he had founded glorify Christ. See Acts chapter 15 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was not content to lead men and women to Christ and then abandon them. And for an example of, of his, quote, aftercare, read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When Paul heard 
that false teachers had begun to capture his converts and lead them astray, he was greatly concerned, and rightly so. After all, teaching new Christians uh, how to live for Christ is a is much a part is as much a part of Christ's commissioning as winning them. See Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses nineteen and twenty. Sad to say, many of the Galatian Christians had turned away from Paul, their, who was their spiritual, who was is their spiritual father in the Lord, and were now following legalistic teachers who were mixing Old Testament law with the gospel of God's grace. So we call these false teachers Judaizers, because they were trying to entice Christians back into the Jewish religious system. So Paul had a ministry as an apostle and specifically as as the founder of the Galatian churches. And so he had the authority to deal with the problems in the churches. But there was a second source of authority and that was uh, in verses 3 and 4 from the very beginning Paul clearly stated the message of the gospel because it was this message that the Judaizers were changing. The gospel centers on and in the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this person paid a price. He gave himself to die on the cross. Christ paid the price that he might achieve a purpose, delivering sinners from bondage. Quote, liberty in Christ is the dominant theme of Galatians. So the Judaizers wanted to lead the Christians out of the liberty of grace into or back into the bondage of law. And Paul knew that bondage was not a part of the message of the gospel, for Christ died to set men free. Paul's ministry and his message were sources of spiritual authority. And in verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. The false teachers were not ministering for the glory of Christ, but for their own glory. Like false teachers today, the Judaizers were not busy winning lost people to Christ. Rather, they were stealing other men's converts, and then they were bragging about their statistics. But Paul's motive was pure. Paul's motive was godly. He wanted to glorify Jesus Christ. He did glorify Jesus Christ. Paul was now, uh, has now explained his authority. He's ready for a second uh, step as he begins this battle for the liberty of the Christian. So in verses 6 and 7, um, Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly moving away. This was one reason for Paul's anxiety. The Galatians were deserting the grace of God. The verb indicates they were in the process of deserting and had not fully turned away. God had told them in his grace and save had excuse me had not told them God had called them in his grace and had saved them from their sins now they were moving from that grace back into the law so they were abandoning liberty for legalism 
And they were doing it so quickly without consulting Paul, who was their spiritual father, or giving time even for the Holy Spirit to teach them. So they had uh, become infatuated with the religion of the Judaizers just the way little children follow a stranger, say when he offers them candy. That child is going to follow that stranger. Well, the quote, the grace of God is a basic theme in this letter. Grace is simply God's favor to undeserving sinners like you and I. The words grace and gift go together because salvation is the gift of God through his grace. The Galatian believers were not simply, quote, changing religions or quote, changing churches, but they were actually abandoning the very grace of God. And then to make matters worse, they were deserting the very God of grace. God had called them and God had saved them, and now they were deserting him for human leaders who would bring them into bondage. If nothing else, we must never forget that the Christian life is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A person does not become a Christian merely by agreeing to a set of doctrines or rules. He becomes a Christian by submitting to Christ and trusting him. You can't mix grace and works because the one excludes the other. Salvation is the gift of God's grace purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And to turn from grace to law is to desert the God who saved us. But then again, they were guilty of another sin, and that gave Paul great anxiety. They were perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers claimed to be preaching the, quote, the gospel, but there cannot be two gospels, one centered in works and the other centered in grace. They are not preaching another gospel, wrote Paul, but a different message altogether, one so different from the true gospel that it is no gospel at all. Like the cultists today, the Judaizers would say, Quote, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we have something wonderful to add to what you already believe. As if man could, quote, add anything better to the grace of God. The word translated pervert in verse 7 is used only three times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter 2, Galatians chapter 1, and James chapter 4. And it means to turn about, to change into an opposite character. The word could be translated, quote, to reverse. In other words, the Judaizers had reversed the gospel. They had turned it around and taken it back into the law. And later in this letter, Paul explains how the law was preparation for the coming of Christ. But the Judaizers had a different interpretation. To them, the law and the gospel went together. Except ye be circumcised after the manner or law of Moses, ye cannot be saved, Acts 15 verse 1. What was this deserting and perverting doing to the Galatian Christians? 
We'll see in Galatians 1 and 7, it was troubling them. <coughs> Excuse me. This verse, this verb trouble carries with it the idea of perplexity, confusion, unrest. So you get some idea of the force of this word when you see how it's used in other places. Trouble describes the feelings of the disciples in the ship during the storm in Matthew 14. It also describes the feelings of King Herod when he heard that a new king had been born in, in Matthew 2. So no wonder Paul was anxious for his converts. Uh, they were going through great agitation because of the false doctrines that had been brought into or brought to the churches. Grace always leads to peace. See Galatians 1 verse 3. But the believers had deserted grace, and therefore they had no peace in their hearts. And keep in mind that God's grace involves something more than man's salvation. We, we not only are saved by grace, but we are to live by grace. We stand in grace. It is the foundation for the Christian life. See Romans 5, 1 and 2. Grace gives us the strength we need to be victorious soldiers. Grace enables us to suffer without complaining and even to use what suffering or that suffering for God's glory. So when a Christian turns away from living by God's grace, he must depend on what? On his own power. And this leads to failure and it leads to disappointment. And this is what Paul meant by, quote, fallen from grace later when he said that in Galatians chapter 5. So moving out of the sphere of grace into the sphere of law, ceasing to depend on God's resources and depending on their own resources, no wonder Paul was anxious. His friends in Christ were deserting the God of grace perverting the grace of God and reverting to living by the flesh and their own resources. They had begun their Christian lives in the spirit, but now they were going to try to continue in the power of the flesh. So having explained his authority and expressed his anxiety, Paul then took this third step and he exposes his adversaries in verses 8 uh, through 10. And he says, let's see, where was it? In verses 8 through 10. You know, I'm thinking of that saying, make love, not war. You know, may, may, it may have been a popular slogan, but it is not always feasible. Doctors must, listen to this, make war against disease and death. Sanitary engineers must wait, make war against filth and pollution. Legislators must make war against injustice and crime. And they all fight because of something they love. So the Bible says in Psalms 97 and 10, you that love the Lord hate evil and abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, it says in Romans 12 and 9. So Paul waged war against the false teachers because he loved the truth and because he loved those whom he had led to Christ. 
Like a loving father who guards his daughter until she's married, Paul watched over his converts, lest they would be seduced into sin. So the Judaizers were identified by the false gospel that they preached. The test of a man's ministry is not popularity. See Matthew 24. It's not miraculous signs and wonders. See, see again Matthew 24. But his faithfulness to the word of God and not to and no, note and not and note that 2 John 5 through 11 warns us not to encourage those who bring false doctrine. Don't do it. Christ had committed the gospel to Paul, and he in turn had committed it to other faithful servants. But the Judaizers had come along and, and they had substituted their false gospel for the true gospel and for sin. Paul pronounced them accursed. The word he used is anathema, which means dedicated to destruction. No matter who the preacher might be in, in your life, um, no matter if it's an angel from heaven or even Paul himself, if he preaches any other gospel, he is accursed. His enemies accused Paul of being a compromiser and actually adjusting the gospel to fit the Gentiles. Possibly they twisted the meaning of Paul's statement that, where he said, I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22. They said this, when Paul is with the Jews, he lives like a Jew, but when he is with the Gentiles, he lives like the Gentiles. He is a man pleaser and therefore you cannot trust him. But in reality, it was the false teachers who were the man-pleasers. These, these men are praying, excuse me, these men are paying you special attention, but not sincerely, Paul wrote in Galatians 4.17. So they, went to, they want to shut you off from me, is what Paul was saying, so that you might keep on paying them special attention. Later, Paul also exposed the false teachers as the compromisers, going back to the Old Testament practices so that they would not be persecuted by the Jewish people. See Galatians chapter 6. Paul was definitely not a man-pleaser. His ministry did not come from man, nor did his message come from man. Why then should he be afraid of men? Why should he seek to please men? You know, his heart's desire was to please Christ alone. Paul knew what it was to suffer for the gospel, but the approval or disapproval of men did not move him. Paul wanted the approval of Christ the servant of God is constantly tempted to compromise in order to attract and please men. 
When D.L. Moody was a, a preaching in England, a worker came to him on the platform and told him that a very important nobleman had come into the hall. Well, he said, may, may the meeting be a blessing to him. That was Moody's reply. And he preached just as before without trying to impress anybody. Paul was not a politician. He was an ambassador. His task was not to quote, play politics, but to proclaim a message. So these, these Judaizers, on the other hand, they were cowardly compromisers who mixed law and grace, hoping to please both Jew and Gentiles, but never asking whether or not they were pleasing God. So we've noted the three steps Paul took towards engaging these false teachers in battle. He explained his authority, he expressed his anxiety, and he exposed his adversaries. But how is he going to attack his enemies? What approach will he use to convince the Galatian believers that all they need is faith in God's grace? A quick survey of the entire letter shows that Paul was a master defender of the gospel. Take time to read the entire letter at, at one sitting. And as you read, note the three approaches that Paul took. His first approach was personal. In Galatians chapter 1 and 2, he reviewed his own personal experience with Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. He pointed out that he had received the gospel independently from the Lord and not from the 12, um, 12 apostles, but that they had approved his message and they had approved his ministry. See Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Paul had even defended the gospel when Peter, the leading apostle, had compromised his earlier stand in Galatians chapter 2. The grace demonstrated in Paul's life in his autobiography biographical section of the letter proves that Paul was not a quote counterfeit apostle but that his message and his ministry were true to the faith and then in Galatians 3 and 4 they are doctrinal and in them Paul presented several arguments to establish that sinners are saved by faith and grace not by works and law First, he appealed to their own experiences in Galatians chapter 3. Then he went back to the Old Testament law in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 14, to show that even Abraham and the prophets understood salvation as being by grace through faith. Having mentioned the law, Paul then explained why the law was even or was given originally. He then used the story of Sarah and Hagar to illustrate the relationship between law and grace. The final two chapters of the letter are practical in emphasis as Paul turned from argument to application. The Judaizers accused Paul of promoting lawlessness because he preached the gospel of the grace of God. So in this section, Paul explained the relationship between the grace of God and practical Christian living. 
He showed that living by grace means liberty, not bondage. Depending on the spirit, not the flesh. Living for others, not for self. And living for the glory of God, not for man's approval. So it is either one series of actions or the other. It's either law or it's grace, but it cannot be both. Amen.